0: Well, it's Thanksgiving weekend. Well, we we are uh, taking a break from 1 Corinthians for a while. And for the next few Sundays, we're going to be focusing on the Advent of Jesus Christ, as you can tell. The sermon today is called Light in the Darkness. We'll do that all the way through Christmas. And then I have two more messages that I want to preach that are not Advent. And then um, in January, we'll start back in 1 Corinthians. But today... We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9, chapters 8 and 9 actually, and I want to try to paint a picture. The The situation during Isaiah's time was not good. If, if you know anything about your history, Isaiah was a prophet in the, the he, they called him an 8th century prophet, is what they called him, so in the 700s B.C. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, was at its, its height of prosperity, but it was at the depth of its idolatry. Uh, while everything looked bright and cheery on the outside, the, ins- the 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 people of Judah were rotting from the inside out. Sounds much like our country today, doesn't it? The Northern Kingdom, Israel, was already uh, to the point where they're about to be run by overrun by the Assyrians, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Israel and Judah, uh, the, 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 the divided country who was once the nation of Israel, they came into the promised land. And one of the things that God told them is we want, I want you to come in. I want you to obey me and follow me so that all the nations around can see my glory. But instead of doing that over the process of hundreds of years, they become more like the Canaanites each year that they, they were in the land. And by the time of Isaiah, there was only a remnant that followed the one true God. To understand the uh, the situation better, we're going to survey a little bit of chapter number 8. So if you turn to chapter 8 of Isaiah, that would be helpful. The Lord told Isaiah to explain to the people that because they refused to follow him, he is going to bring a flood in the form of the Assyrian army. It's very poetic how he he wrote how this flood is going to come in. And the Assyrian army is going to come in from the north and, and come against them. However, for Isaiah, the Lord told him not to fear because God will be his sanctuary. That's the word that God uses. Now, when you, when you think, you would think, given Israel's history knowing how they came into the promised land that when times would turn dark and and ominous and, and dreary and dangerous that they would turn to God when facing such danger but in fact that's not the case in chapter 8 in verse number 19 instead of consulting the lord uh, Isaiah said that they consulted mediums and necromancers. Necromancers are simply people who contact the dead. They are looking to answers for their problems here on earth. They are looking earthly. They were looking around them. mediums, necromancers, when they should have been looking to the Lord. As a result, they were going to stumble and fall and be broken. And as they looked around, as they, they consulted, they found no answers to the condition but do they change answers? No, they kept looking around them for their answers. You know, they're kind of like the person who's computer illiterate. You ever had that uh, that um, in-law, or I'll, I'll use in-law, we wouldn't want to use a family member, right, who's computer illiterate, and and they kept they complaining about the computer, doing the same thing over and over again, wondering why the results don't change. Well, that's kind of the way that the people of Israel were. Uh, what, what were they doing? Well, uh, this idol's not working, so I'm gonna try this incantation. Well, this, this incantation's not gonna work, so I'm gonna try another one. Well, that medium didn't work, so I'm gonna try this spiritist. And, and they'll keep trying earthly-centered solutions with no apparent change, and it never occurs to them to look up. It's no different than today, is it? Well, um, let's see. I'm going to go for hedonism. That's what young people like, isn't it? I'm going to live for today, live like there's no tomorrow. I'm going to enjoy as much pleasure as I possibly can. Well, that doesn't work, so I'm going to try a life of extreme self-discipline. I'm going to di- discipline every area of my life, and maybe I can get happiness by extreme self-discipline. Well, that doesn't work, so I think I'll just throw myself into my job and maybe I'll find fulfillment. Maybe I'll find answers to my problems in my job. Well, that's not working, so I think I'll start a family. Um, if you think family's going to solve your problems, you've got another thing coming, right? Well, family makes me miserable, so I'm going to turn to therapy. And all of these things are our horizontal means that don't work. And so the easiest way to, 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 well, the way to think about this is that this is the condition of man in general. Now, what I'm going to do in the text today, it's, it's, it's really its hard to outline, so I'm not going to try to outline. I'm just going to give you word pictures, if that's okay. And you can see them in the text as we move through it. And we'll just use the images that, that come in the text to, to move through it. So let's look at verse number 19 of chapter 8. We're looking at Isaiah 8, verse number 19. And I want you to see the picture that's being painted here. And when they say to you, inquire of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. And by the way, nobody knows exactly what that is the uh, chirping, muttering. Um, somebody joked one time, it must be talking about Twitter. I have no idea. But um, he goes on to say, should not a people inquire their God? Should they inquire of the dead on the behalf of the living? That's talking about the necromancers, those who supposedly contact dead spirits, right? And by the way, there's a wordplay going on there because they're literally consulting the dead but the idea is even today what do people do in in the land of the living they're consulting the dead uh things are temporal the things are passing away they're dead right okay well let's keep reading "...to the teaching and to the testimony." That's talking about the Word of God. "...to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their King and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness... The gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into a thick darkness. And so what is this a picture of? This would be the picture of, of gloom and darkness. That's that's the best way to look at it, isn't it? The people are in gloom and darkness of a physical and spiritual oppression. In the north, In and Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, but in the north in Israel, the Assyrian army is coming. And, and they're, they're, they're running over the northern kingdom at this point. And so the people are not only in spirit, or I mean physical oppression, but they're also spiritually oppressed because they're looking on the horizontal plane to try to answer the questions. And they're miserable. But Isaiah doesn't leave them there, does he? Notice what he does. Verse 16, and again in 20, he says the testimony. And in verse number 20, he says the teaching and the testimony. What is he speaking of? I already said he's speaking of the word of God. And so he's taking these people who were looking in the wrong place and he's telling them, turn to the word of God. Turn to the testimony of God and notice what he says in verse number one of chapter number nine. Let's look at verse one and there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So in their in their deep gloom and anguish, talk about Israel, national Israel. He tells him that that there's a little bit of hope. And, and he's, he's speaking of, of the word of God, right? And he says, um, he, he gets, he goes on. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made it glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of nations. Now let me ask you something. If you didn't know this was a Christmas, um, a Christmas sermon, what on earth would I... If I just walked up to you and started speaking to you in riddles like that, what would you do? Uh, don't tell me, because <laughs> I really don't want to know, right? So it just seems like a real riddle, doesn't it? The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea and glorious way and, and all this. Well, let me explain what he's saying. Zebulun and Naphtali... That area was conquered again and again Anytime a nation, whether it was Assyria or Babylon or Persia, um, whenever they came across the Euphrates, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, that area got conquered first because they conquered Israel as they came down the country from the north um, and and when they would conquer them, they would d- raise their cities and then they would resettle the cities maybe with other people and resettle the people somewhere else. And so their houses were destroyed, their families and communities were destroyed, they were carried away into captivity. They were not near Jerusalem at all. And so the second thing that we see about this area, they're in gloom because of the way they conquered, but they're in gloom because they're not even important. You know what the, you would call Nep- uh, Zebulun and Naphtali today? Flyover country. We're familiar with that term, right? I spent my whole life in flyover country. I guess supposedly I live where it really matters now, right? Near Washington, D.C. That's what I've been told. But it's this gloom and deep darkness that we find Isaiah 9 two. look at verse number two with me. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them the light has shown. What on earth is Isaiah talking about? Let me see if I can show you. For this, we need to go to Matthew chapter number 4. So hold your finger here. Turn to Matthew 4. I shouldn't even say that anymore. So many people have electronic devices, right? But Matthew chapter 4, let's look at verse number 12. And I'll explain to you what's going on. Matthew four twelve. Now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So after hearing that John John the Baptist had been arrested, um, he went back to his home. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And then look what it says. And from then Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you look on the map here, Jesus uh, of Nazareth, right here is Nazareth. Right. Notice the, the place. That's the tribal boundary of Zebulun. And he went from Nazareth and traveled up to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, which is in Naphtali. And you see the 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 boundary here. And this region is in. In 700 years after Isaiah, this region is called Galilee. It's a region called Galilee. And so Isaiah was predicting that in this backwater area where none of the important people live, Will come the great light, the light of Jesus Christ, to Zebulun and Naphtali, and uh, the and one of the pictures that is fleshed out in the new, in the Gospels is that Jesus broke the bonds of oppression, didn't he? How many times is there a demon possessed person that Jesus breaks their bonds? How many times is there somebody who is bounded by sickness? And and some kind of uh, lameness, and Jesus unbinds them, and that's that's what uh, Isaiah is talking about, and he's describing it like a present reality, something that it's something that awaits him in the future, but Isaiah is talking about it in the present tense. If you go back to Isaiah chapter nine, why is he doing this? He's doing this because it's going to happen. And so he can speak about it in the present tense uh, because it's going to happen. There's, it's a guarantee that this will happen. And he says, those who dwell in thick darkness have seen a great light. And that's the, the second uh, word in our picture, and that is light. Into the gloom and doom, light comes in the, in the man, Jesus Christ. Now here's a, here's a question I have for you. If somebody is in darkness... And somebody, and let's say there's a group of people in darkness, and you turn on the light, can everybody see that light? You say yes, I, I didn't throw a caveat in there. Caveat is, what about if there's somebody who's blind? A blind person, it doesn't matter how much light you throw at them, they will never see, right? And so get the picture here that's going on. Here in this gloom and doom, Jesus Christ came, and, and he's throwing out this light. And no matter how much light is shined into a blind person's eyes, they will not see. And that is the same as true of spiritual blindness. It is only the eye of faith. That can see the light of Jesus Christ. And only God can bring around this change of perception. And that is why he writes in verse number 7. If you look in Isaiah 9, 7, he says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How is the gloom and doom of darkness penetrated? The answer is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And this runs through the entire Bible. The entire Bible talks about light conquering darkness. What's the very first passage in Genesis chapter number 1? And God said what? Let there be light, and there was light. And so, immediately... The light conquers the darkness. Jesus walks into the temple and he says, I've come into the world as light and whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And that's that's key. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Paul uses the same picture to describe the Corinthians. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the full light of the knowledge of the glory of, uh, of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's describing what happens when light breaks into darkness. And by nature, we live on the dark side. We are not neutral. John answered the question of why this is true when he says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. That's John 3.19, and he follows up in verse number 20 by saying this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so let's let's try to understand what happened during Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus comes, this huge, bright light. And initially, when, when Jesus comes, there's these great crowds, isn't there? Remember John chapter number six? They're in the wilderness around the Sea of Galilee, and he feeds 5,000, and the, then he sends the people home. The next morning, he travels a little bit further around the Sea of Galilee, and uh, the people come the next morning, and he begins to tell them the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, and on that day, many left him. So many people left him that he looked at the disciples and said, Will you leave also? And what did Peter say? Do you remember? He said, why would we leave you? You have the words of life. What's the difference between Peter and all the other people that left? The answer is that God shined a light in his heart, and his heart was a heart of faith. And, and, and here's the thing. Jesus appeared during dark circumstances. And why is it that not everyone had faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is that no matter how much spiritual light is shined in the heart, it is only God that enables that heart to see the light. Paul said it in in Colossians chapter 1 when he said, "...He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son." When God gives you the ability to see the light, the result is that you see the light. I know that's profound, isn't it? You like that. But that is true physically and it is true spiritually. Not every blind person in Israel received sight. Only those who got who Jesus commanded that they could see saw. Not everybody who sees the spiritual light of Jesus Christ sees the spirit light of jesus christ it's only those who god enables to have a heart of faith that's what the bible teaches there's a third thing that happens so we got gloom and darkness and then you see the light and when you see the light there's an immediate response and tell me if this is not true of you when you see the light there's an immediate response of joy joy isn't there the people who walked in darkness, this is verse number 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy to harvest, as they are glad, as when they divide the spoil. So here's the picture. There's this tiny remnant of believing People in Israel during Isaiah's day and during Jesus' day and, and they're, they're scarcely going to believe how God would fulfill his promises. And, and this, this tiny remnant of people are believing in God in this sea of darkness. Sound familiar? They're wondering to themselves, what is going to be of the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12? Remember, he he told Gen- he told Abraham in Genesis 12, "I'm going to make of you a great nation, as many as the sand of the uh, of the seashore. So many are your descendants going to be?" And here they are; they're in national Israel, and there's only a small remnant who are truly righteous, truly following after God. You get to Jesus Day, and you find the same thing is going on, and it's because cause they feel that this remnant is going to be snuffed out and the answer to the believer is that if you go to revelation chapter number 7 and you don't have to turn there but just just listen when you look at revelation 7 it, it describes people from all the tribes of Israel 12,000 from each tribe and then it says People who are not from the tribes of Israel. And it's like the sand of the seashore. So many people. There are so many people who have come to Jesus Christ by Revelation 7. And people from every corner of the world. And so now it's no longer national Israel and maybe a few Gentiles like what you see in Isaiah's day. Rather the role has been reversed. They, 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 there's a remnant who's become a multitude of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, praising the Lord. And guess what? That would be you and I. Wouldn't it? Praise the Lord that he shined the light, not only in Israel, but everywhere else. Now let me ask you a question. Almost everything, every truth that's going to come to pass is is prefigured somewhere in the Bible. So where do we see this prefigured at the birth of Jesus Christ? Answer is the wise men. Notice I didn't say the three wise men. The wise men. Do you remember what happened? They come strolling into Jerusalem, and they start asking, where is the Messiah? Where is, we see his star? And it's not star in the east, it's when we were in the east, we saw his star. Okay. Now, why is it that these Babylonians or Persians, one of the two, uh, these wise men saw the star And nobody in Israel saw the star. Did you notice that it never mentions that the Israelites saw the star? What's going on there? The wise men had eyes of faith. And so they were able to see his star, his glory. By the way, I'm going to take a little caveat. This is going to totally derail some of you. But i got to say this. Ignore any article that you ever see about what was the star in the east. Well, was it a supernova? Was it a conjunction of, of Jupiter and stuff? Can I tell you? Just read the Wiseman narrative and think about why did the people of Israel not see it? The bottom line is it was the glory of God. Isn't that what it says in the Luke narrative? The glory of the Lord shone round about them. These men saw the glory of God and followed the glory of God to Jerusalem. Now, that's that's okay I'm just going to tell you that. But think about it. People back in the day, they weren't stupid. They, they would be able to tell if it was Jupiter or Venus. I've seen, well, those people in Israel are so backward that they didn't realize that that was Venus. Come on. Give me a break. Uh, they didn't realize it was a supernova. They'd seen these sort of things before. And so now that I've completely derailed half of you, let's get back to our, our topic at hand here. The, the wise men were able to see it because God was in the process of bringing the nations to his Son. The joy that is to be experienced. Notice these verses, verse number three, particularly. The joy that is to be experienced of those who are part of is the joy of those who are part of the harvest. Verse three: You multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. In ancient Israel. When there was a harvest, they always took time to praise and glorify the Lord because God provided the harvest. Now, we have irrigation systems. We have modern uh, uh, hybrid seeds. We have all this stuff. You know what they had in Israel? They had the rain, and God brought the rain, and God still brings the rain today. And so they depended upon the Lord just like we do But they depended upon Him and they understood that they did. And so when God provided, whether it was the, 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 the barley harvest or the wheat harvest, whether it was the, the olive harvest or the grape harvest, whatever it was, when it was done, there was great joy and rejoicing. It was cause, it was a community event that they rejoiced. And so what did they do to be part of this harvest? Let me ask you this. What did they do to be part of the harvest? They took the seeds and they threw it. That's what they did. They tilled the ground, they threw the seed. Who did the rest? God brought the rain. God brought the growth. They could not cause the seed to grow. Only God could do those sorts of things. That was God's job. And we... Dear believer, we have the privilege of planting the seed of the gospel, of praying to the Lord of the harvest to to have that seed watered and to eventually bear the fruit of salvation. We have the blessed privilege of casting the seed whether it's in Christmas tracks like what I have here and what's out there or telling the gospel to somebody else. And when God waters that heart, when God brings about the fruit of the harvest, guess what? We get to partake in it. We get the joy of the harvest. But there's another thing here. There's another image. It's more violent. We will have the joy of those who celebrate and enjoy the plunder of victory in battle. Look at what he says in verse number three, the the last part. He says, as they are glad... When they divide the spoil, the victory has been won. Jesus Christ secured the victory. He fought against death. He fought against sin. He fought against Satan. And forever and ever and ever, scriptures tells us that we get to enjoy the plunder of the battle that He has won. Amen? What a, a wonderful message that Isaiah is giving here. Victory in the battle belonged to the Lord. Abundance in the harvest is a result of His goodness and is given to those who believe in Him. In the gloom, the light shines. In the face of insurmountable odds, the people of God d- discover victory. I want to point out something that most people, when they read this narrative, they just, they run on by it. Look at verse number four. This is, this is a, a nugget. Um, for the yoke of his burden, a staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, is you have broken on the day of Midian. And then you move on to the next verse. There's a really neat little phrase in there. You ready? On the day of Midian. Most people just read that. They don't understand it. They don't have a study Bible. They move on. If you have a concordance, you have computer software. If you have Google, even, you can probably Google Midian. I've never tried that, actually. <laughs> but... What is Midian? And it will take you back to the book of Judges, to this guy named Gideon. And the Midianites were oppressing. And you remember how that the Lord, and we've talked about this story already, how, how that the Lord found Gideon, and he is in an, uh, a wine press trying to thresh the wheat so that he could um, have uh, the chaff blown away. He was a scaredy-cat, basically. And, and God tells Gideon to lead an army to go fight against the Midianites. And 32,000 warriors come out. And here he is, he's telling God, look, I'm the least in my father's house. 32,000 men came out. He was probably still scared. And God says, that's way too many. And so 22,000 people go home. And now the numbers are insurmountable. There's only 10,000 left to go against the sea of Midianites. And God says, it's still too many. I want to reduce the numbers more. And so 9,700 people are, are left, are taken, and only 300 are left. And now the odds are truly insurmountable and to the point where only God can have the victory. And so when the battle is over, the people were unmistakably clear that the battle is the Lord's. The victory is His. The battle belongs to the Lord. And praise the Lord, Jesus Christ won the battle for us. The odds are insurmountable. Look at verse number 4 again. Reread it with a different appreciation. For the yoke of His burden, a staff for His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. When Christ was beaten, when Christ was oppressed, that was a symbolic of the oppression that was on us. And Christ, through His sacrificial death on the cross and His resurrection, He broke the bonds of death. He broke the chains of sin. And now He leaves us in in a state where we can gradually, uh, uh, with His help, overpower sin. But one day, praise God, one day, when we're completely glorified, we will sin no more and never be tempted to sin again so thankful for what christ has done and we enjoy the harvest and we enjoy the plunder and it only comes because of the intervention of god almighty let me give you another one writing number four freedom freedom look at verse number four i already read uh the day of midian so let's go to verse number five for every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire What is he saying? That's kind of gory, isn't it? What is he saying? He is saying that on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, and and Richard mentioned it, that we're waiting for a second advent, on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, God sets people free. God is the God who currently carries our burdens. He takes our beatings. He vanquishes our tyrants. He is the God who who in Jesus Christ takes our burdens and makes them His own. A God who in Jesus takes our beatings by being beaten Himself and nailed to a cross. A God who in Jesus relieves us of our tyrants by putting uh, His neck to the tyranny of hell let loose against Him. And He did it all for His glory and for our good. And for some of you, you have burdens that weigh you down. You're you're oppressed by things. You're You're tempted. To look to the earth for your solutions, you may be you you may be gone, going to the dead for the answers to the questions about your life, and you haven't found them. And you've been told that your problem is a disorder. Maybe you've been told that um, you're stuck where you are. It's just the way you're wired. There's no way out. And Isaiah is telling you there is. Freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. He frees us from our burdens, relieves us of our beatings, and overcomes our tyrants. And that is how Jesus Christ could walk into the synagogue in Nazareth, where he had grown up as a little boy and heard all the the, the lectures of the of the rabbis. And he finds the place in the scroll in Isaiah sixty-one where he says, "This the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news." To the poor, to set, see, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He read that passage and he stopped right there. And that, the Bible. By the way, little little side note: Jesus says, "In the manner that I come, so send I you." Guess what? That is what we are to do. We are to proclaim the same message, set the prisoners free, the captives, those who are burdened, those who, are, who have um, uh, a tyranny, oppressors uh, on them. And Jesus went in and said these things, and Luke goes on to say, And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, listen to what he said, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one who frees you from oppression. I am the one who sets the captives free. I am the one who brings the light so that there's no more gloom and darkness. And praise God he did. Now I have one more question to answer. How can Jesus do this? And the last part of our, our message, his incarnation Look at verse number six for unto us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. With, injustice, with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know what the answer is? The incarnation. What do we see in these verses? First of all, we see in the incarnation, a child is born. That speaks of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a real human being. He was human. He was man. And He was a man. He had to be a man because He had to die in man's place. He had to bear man's sins. He had to feel man's pain. But look at the next little phrase. He he is unto us a son is what? Does it say born? No, it says given. Given by whom? God. This is his deity. He was not only man, but he was God. He was divine in human form. He had to be God, didn't he? He had to be man to bear man's sin, but he had to be God God to defeat sin and defeat death. Notice the next little phrase. What is he? Wonderful counselor. A wonder of a counselor. Men today search the world for wisdom. They search for answers. They search for the meaning of life. They search for solutions to their problems. They go to psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists and counselors, and they read books and they try everything, and they never get any help. And the Word of God says, are you looking for the wonderful counselor? I offer you Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect counselor. Do you know what I've noticed in my counseling? I've noticed in my counseling that many of the people, I would say at least half, maybe more of the people that I give counsel to are never helped by my counsel, and it doesn't have to do with my counsel. you know what it has to do with? They never take the wisdom of the counsel from the Word of God and apply it to their lives. Marriage counseling, when I do marriage counseling, I can tell right away whether or not anything's going to happen because of the way they respond. He is the wonderful counselor. God's Word is life. God's Word's freedom. God's Word frees you from tyranny. Notice it's because of that fourth little phrase, this is true, and that is mighty God. He's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He can not only tell you what to do, but he can energize you to do it. Isn't that great? I would imagine if you've been saved any time at all and you are growing in your sanctification, you can look back and see how God has energized you to overcome sin. You can see how God is giving you the grace you need during difficult times to persevere through difficult times, hasn't he? You can see how in times when you needed his wisdom, he came and he energized you and gave you his wisdom and you overcame. He's the wonderful counselor and he's the mighty God. And he's given you a, a living heart. What a tremendous, tremendous Savior Jesus is counsel can only go so far and it stops at the point of power and that's where the mighty God steps in he not only counsels us but he has full divine power to act on our behalf resurrection power the power that raised him from the dead creative power the power that created the universe is the power of God that is there on your behalf and then notice something else what else is he called everlasting father now that that's weird isn't it How is the Son called the Father? Well, I'll tell you this. He is a child in time, but in eternity He is the Father. He is a child of time, and the Father, listen, the Father of timelessness. Jesus Christ fathered eternity. Jesus Christ Fathered eternal life. Wrap your mind around that. He fathers eternal life for all who believe, and that's the main import of what Isaiah is saying here when he says, "Everlasting God, everlasting Father." And then knows something else: Prince of Peace. In His kingdom, there is peace, and He can bring peace at least three different ways. Can He? He can bring peace between man and God. He can bring peace in your heart. And one day, he will reign and there will be peace everywhere. Won't that be great? You ever get tired? Uh, Let me back up. I know you do. You really don't have to watch the news every day, do you? Because it's going to be the same thing every day. If somebody watches the news, some, we ought to just assign somebody to watch the news for us. What was the news today? Well, it's basically the same thing as yesterday. There's turmoil yesterday. There's turmoil today. Let me predict what's going to happen tomorrow. You ready? There's turmoil. There's not going to be any kind of peace. Um, and we understand that. But one day, one day, Christ will come back. In all of his glory. And he will conquer every enemy. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy that shall be conquered is death. And death will be no more. And we will have complete peace. And complete joy. And we will see with no longer through a glass darkly. We will see spiritual truth clearly and completely. Won't that be a day? All because of the Incarnation. Now, if you're here today, and you're looking around all over for peace, for a solution to your problems, can I ask you to do this? <clears throat> Look up to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's told the disciples, my peace I leave you. Isn't that wonderful? Christ. Has peace. And you can have peace with Christ, you can have peace with God by simply turning to Him in belief. Jesus, I believe that You died on the cross to take my sin away. And I'm trusting Your work on the cross to get me to heaven. Not my own works, not my own goodness, not the amount of money I get to the church. I'm trusting you, Jesus. And the result, the same, the different side of that same coin is there's repentance. There's a repentant life. And what does that mean? That means that you begin to see your sins, no matter how big or little they are in your mind, the same way God sees them. They're an affront to God. And so you don't want to do it. And so you begin to live what's called a repentant life. And so you have the belief and the fruit all on the same coin. They're, they're inseparable. Have you trusted the Prince of Peace? The land of darkness has seen a great light. Have you seen the light? Lord, we thank you for these precious words of Isaiah. They're actually God's words, but they're, they're, Isaiah wrote them exactly what you would have him to say. I pray, Lord, that will those who are believers, that we will be comforted by the words of Isaiah. For those who are here and may not have trusted in you, I pray that today will be their day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.